0: Hi and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today for episode 308, my guest is Philip Glasman of River and we're talking about scaling exchanges using Lightning as well as talking about Lightning user profiles and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this episode as we discuss the various nuances around Lightning users and exchanges. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan is the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with a lump sum purchase or setting up your Bitcoin savings plan and automatically recurring buys. Swan Bitcoin is really fast to set up, and there's definitely a strong focus on education and content, because the more you know, the more you buy. Swan is Bitcoin only, so there's no confusion with altcoins. It's a great place to send your pre-coiner and new-coiner friends, or if you are a high net worth individual or a corporate and you're looking to sign up to stack Sats, go to swanprivate.com and you will get access to a dedicated Bitcoin account expert who's available for one-on-one calls, and I'm helping out uh, with some of those calls as well. Swan Private customers also receive Swan Private Insight, which is a monthly research report. So go to swanprivate.com and sign up there. Lend at HODLHODL is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin backed lending platform where you can borrow or lend out stablecoins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. So with Lend at HODLHODL, you no longer need to sell your Bitcoin to get some short-term liquidity, borrow stablecoins against your Bitcoin and control your collateral in escrow throughout that whole deal. Stablecoin owners can earn some extra interest by lending their stablecoins out and defining the terms and the APR for their deals. HODLHODL's lending platform is currently going through a major upgrade and there are improvements to be available. Sign up at lend.hoddlehoddle.com with the promo code SEPTEMBER to get a 50% discount on the platform's origination fee once the lending functionality is available again. Are you interested to get involved with Bitcoin mining? Compass is an online marketplace making it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin and enhance the Bitcoin network's security. So with Compass, you can purchase an ASIC and have that sent and set up at facilities that have been vetted by the Compass team all around the world. So for years, we've heard that mining was only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now with Compass, everyone can tap into those economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. Or on the other hand, if you would like to mine at home, Compass Mining at Home is now a new product available if you're in the US. So if you're unsure about how to get started, Compass offers hardware and hosting bundles, you don't need to have advanced technical knowledge, you can quickly get started. Go to compassmining.io and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show with Philip. Philip, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Stefan. Really excited to be here.
0: So, Philip, you're at River, and River has a lot of really cool, interesting stuff going on technologically, and I'm sure you can tell us a little bit about that. But uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the more technical side of Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before I... I've, I've always been interested in Bitcoin. I My rabbit hole was being libertarian, reading about Hayek, learning about Bitcoin that way. And then I uh, went to school in... Uh, went to school for computer science and figured that Bitcoin would be the best way to leverage that degree. And it's sort of like an intersection of two different passions of both technology and also Bitcoin. And after school, I moved to Europe and I worked at Bitmain at BTC.com for about a year, working on their wallet team. And after that, I moved to San Francisco uh, and met the two founders of River, Alex and Andrew. And I joined River Financial, uh and it's been uh, a blast ever since. We've been growing and selling Bitcoin
0: to new people ever since. Fantastic. And so I think one thing that I like about River is that it does take a very... You guys are very lightning heavy, if you will, and so that's an interesting approach out there, and I'm sure there'll be various arguments pro and against and all of that so I'd love to hear a little bit about how and why you went about that approach of actually really taking lightning very seriously from day one because that was the that was the impression I got
1: yeah, absolutely um, so I would say river is Bitcoin heavy for those that know that don't know River is a simple and secure platform to buy sell, and use bitcoin um, River.com is the brokerage, and what we offer is a white glove service for people that want to buy Bitcoin, store their Bitcoin with us, or just even use Bitcoin. And Lightning has been this opportunity to use our hyper-focus on the Bitcoin technology and offer a novel way to extend the use case of Bitcoin. What we found is that a lot of people do really like to use uh, the Lightning Network, and I think our user experience... Has made it easy to, in order to both deposit and withdraw Lightning with with ease, and there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different reasons people use Lightning on our platform, and they're all equally exciting.
0: Awesome! And so, you guys have been running the Lightning node for something like two years now, is it? Or can you tell us a little bit a bit about your experiences there?
1: Yeah, we soft launched in October 2019, and we've been running Lightning since day one. We always knew that this is going to be part of the future, uh, it's always been integral to our product suite. And when we launched, we, we had the ability to both deposit and withdraw lightning. And our architecture has since matured a lot, as has uh, the network itself. Um, In the beginning, we were uh, running a couple Lightning nodes, structuring it in such a way that people can easily send and receive small amounts of money. We've also had a pretty hard limit with regards to how much you can send and receive in the beginning. That was quite small. But as reliability has improved throughout the whole network, we've been able to increase these limits. And we've seen a a lot of growth uh, around both how many people are using Lightning Network on our platform, but also the amount of money that's
0: going through the network. Yeah, it really has come such a long way because I remember in 2019, you might have gotten more payment failures. And there was certainly uh, MPP was not popular then, or I think it only came in at the end of that year. And so that's just one example there. Was that also similar to the experience you had in terms of being able to route larger payments or even smaller payments?
1: Yeah, I think it's twofold where both the network at the time was really immature with regards to its participants and also its liquidity. And the other part was that there wasn't really enterprise tooling built out yet. It's one thing to run a node on a Raspberry Pi and connect with different nodes as a hobbyist. And then it's, it's, it's completely different to run Lightning Network as an enterprise. There are completely different requirements. There's, um, there's security requirements. Uh, there is observability requirements and when we launched, there really wasn't enough tooling built out yet. And um, it was sort of onto us internally to really build uh, a custom system, uh, a custom set of tools that allow us to both detect failures, diagnose these failures, and try to improve the situation. I think us having a very limited limit with regards to both setting and receiving in the beginning and increasing it over time has really helped user experience. I think one thing that really stood out to us is that we really believe in Bitcoin. And we want to show that the Lightning Network, though, it, at the time was nascent. We want to show people that this technology works and um, provide like the best experience possible. And, uh, with that said, we were always really, really upset whenever a payment failure happened. Right. And I, you know, we always like rushed to build tools to make sure that we can improve the situation. And, uh, you know, those, those payment failures are really, really sparse nowadays. Um, I only really see payment failures if it's, you know, reaching a node at the edge of the graph and it's some private destination that doesn't have inbound liquidity. And, you know, once we notice something like that, we'll speak with the client and help them navigate the space. Uh, client education has always been a really big part of uh, introducing lightning to our clients. But yeah, it's, it's gone a long way. It's, it's pretty re- remarkable what two years can do to a technology if you look at like the graph of public public channels and the amount of bitcoin locked in it it's just like a hockey stick and these like payment failures have like all for the most part been resolved and the type of large payments we see today it's just unthinkable back uh, two years ago
0: yeah and so i mean obviously without doxing and stuff but do you you have any rough No numbers you could share or anything that you're seeing, like you regularly see thousand dollar payments, $5,000 payments, or like, what kind of numbers do you see?
1: Yeah. I I mean, it, it really depends on the type of user, right? I recently wrote a blog post at our river engineering blog about scaling lightning network at river. And, um, in the blog, uh, identified three different types of users. You have like the, the consumers, um, that pretty much use lightning as like a payments platform. You have traders that, use lightning as a fast settlement platform. And then you have the hobbyists that are really quick to jump on new trends, use this as like swap service, use this as a wallet as an entry point into the network. And all these different types of users have varying levels of amounts that they send and receive. It honestly varies to, to the people that try out for the first time and they just want to send two sats and see what it feels like to have an instant payment network. And then it's people that actually are moving large sizes, tens of thousands of dollars that without any hiccup at all. And it's really amazing to see.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to see the spelling out there of the different categories of customer, right? So I can imagine someone who's totally new, just a retail customer who wants to buy some Bitcoin. And now they just want to play around with paying with lightning and they just want to buy something on you know, BitRefill or Blockstream store or something. And uh, I guess, what's the education journey like for that customer? Because I presume some of them don't really understand Bitcoin on-chain versus Lightning. What's the education process like there?
1: Yeah, so the Bitcoin team at River works really closely with client services at River. And it's been a journey to educate clients on what exactly Lightning Network is and how it's different from on-chain. But even stepping back from there, a lot of our users are first-time buyers, right? And so it's their first time into lightning, but it's also their first time into using Bitcoin. And they have to understand the nuances of addresses, how self-custody works, what are blocks, what are payment confirmations. And then once they're finished learning the basics of the Bitcoin like base layer, then they have to learn about lightning network and what are nodes and what's a pre-image and what's an invoice and why is there an expiry? And why did the route fail? And there are all these different questions that people like, you know, often ask when they start using these things. But so since day one, the the thesis we had at River was both the base layer and Lightning Network is just a payments rail. And really, at the end of the day, the person that is withdrawing doesn't so much care about which layer they're using as much as did the payment go to the recipient? Was it the right amount? And is there some sort of proof that it went through? And in our user experience, um, we just present simple input form that lets people paste either an address, any sort of address, you know, batch 32, whatever, or uh, a bolt 11 invoice. And we handle the parsing and provide this this final information before they send the payment. And we don't bifurcate, you know, between like, uh, lightning Bitcoin or on chain Bitcoin, it's just Bitcoin as a balance in the user, um, account. And so the user doesn't really have to worry too much about, you know, how much lightning Bitcoin I have or on chain. It's just Bitcoin. And the benefit of that is that if you just use Bitcoin, uh, on chain, you don't have to worry about lightning and you can just continue to use Bitcoin as you usually do. But if you're a power user or first time using the lightning network, it's like this hidden unlock and y- you've discovered a way to send Bitcoin very instantly, fast and cheap. And what we've done to kind of improve the education around this is two things. Uh, one is we have River Learn, which is a public education resource that people can use to learn more about the technical and economic and narratives around Bitcoin as a whole. And then we also have a knowledge base that lets people, um, you know, poke around and ask questions and, you know, go through step by step on what what it's like to withdraw. But I I think really what what really helped us in helping people understand the line. the Lightning Network is our client services team. They're always on call. We pride ourselves in having a phone number that's reachable. And so a client can always call and ask questions about, you know, what is the Lightning Network? How do I use it? And this kind of white glove service has helped us really develop a really close relationship to the client, but also really understand their question.
0: I see. Yeah. So it's a mix. It's a combo of things. It's the user experience of how you use River in terms of scanning a Bitcoin address or a Lightning invoice, the River, Learn, and then the customer service team and just that aspect of hands-on service. So then I guess in this case, for the customers who are using Lightning, you've got a you know pass that uh bitcoin address or lightning invoice and then from that you know make your you know make the payment for them and so at that point as part of those things in terms of making it have making the customer have a nice experience you're doing things like probing the network to check the route and see okay what are the fees and to see okay what's my success probability in trying to attempt this payment and things like that right
1: yeah that's right so Under the hood, uh, when somebody enters a Bolt 11 invoice, what we do is we probe the network for two reasons. One is one we want to make sure that you know we could at least attempt to pay this uh, destination. The other part is that, like on chain, there are fees in Lightning Network. There is a base fee for routing a payment that each routing node advertises, and then there is a proportional fee uh, that's related to the amount of money that one is sending on the Lightning Network. And us probing the network allows people to have no surprises and able to see uh, an an explicit fee before they send. And so on that final confirmation page, they're able to kind of, uh, you know, gauge, is this, you know, payment worthy of sending for this amount of sats, And yeah, I, you know, there is also like these very interesting edge cases, why, why charge a fee, even though the fees are so low, right? Well, there are all these different, like interesting, like attacks somebody could do, there is like, uh, you know, fee siphoning attacks that are happening now is uh, i saw like a recent post on reddit about this somebody siphoning money from exchanges generally speaking if you're sending a payment you have to you have to pay some sort of fee and you have to make sure that the person that's sending the payment is the one paying the fee or else you have some sort of you know dos or fee siphoning attack and what i mean by uh, fee siphoning attack is that you know a malicious user could set up a route where one of the routing nodes is along the route and they can charge a very high fee and take that fee uh, and pocket it for themselves. And this isn't really a genuine fee for routing payments, but it's more of a way to scalp uh, both clients as well as exchanges from their um, you know, money.
0: Yeah, so essentially they would set up their own little route and make sure that they're the only way to get to this destination and set up a super high fee and basically try to get really high and basically just suck fees out of the exchanges that way. So that is a very interesting idea because then as an exchange technical team how would you even stop that because here's the thing you don't know that that whether it's legitimate or whether it's actually uh, obviously this guy trying to siphon the fees
1: yeah for the first part by showing the fee itself to the user is a good step as a sanity check that a human can take and see that okay is this fee rational or not and they can make that decision on the other hand, uh, we're the ones building the routes at, at the end of the day, right? Because Lightning Network is uh, source-based routing. We're the ones constructing the routes. And we decide the the way that the payment's going to flow through the network. And the way we, you know, the way, I guess the uh, the first step that's more naive to minimize this sort of attack is to have a well-connected routing node. So be very central, yeah. have large channels with different nodes, and make sure that you're not limiting yourself. Um, to one, sec- one section of the graph through this one person that might be malicious. The other uh, angle of it that's a little bit more complex is how do you identify this, right? And over time, right, if, if you're able to identify a node that is leveraging these high fees, you just have to essentially build a route around them or just notice that there is the sort of experience that a client is having and suggest uh, some sort of remedy, right? Because at the end of the day, they're paying, they might be the one doing the attack, but more likely is that they're the ones that are uh, perhaps, you know, being scammed from a high fee. And so it's just a matter of working with them and figuring out, okay, you have Bitcoin, how do you get this Bitcoin to your recipient? And how do you do it in a very cheap and honest way?
0: Yeah, 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 clever. And I mean, I guess if that attacker was going to get really clever about it, maybe they would set up their node in such a way that it only has one channel from their own person and rejects channels from anybody else so you can't even route. Another way, Uh, but anyway, that's I guess that's kind of an interesting aside. But I'd also love to chat a little bit. And you mentioned the profiles as well, so the user profiles. So you might have the consumer profile, and as an example, obviously, as many of us, many of us in Bitcoin, we're stackers. We are accumulators. So I've I've wondered, does it make sense for a consumer, like a retail consumer, to stack on Lightning, or as is it actually better for them to try to batch up their Purchases and do one withdrawal on chain. Like, what what are your thoughts on that? And do you have any tips for people out there?
1: Yeah, well, Lightning is unfairly cheap, <laughs> and compared to uh, on chain, well, right now, well, uh, I guess while we're talking, the the on chain fees are like one sat per vbyte, so it's pretty good day to send money around. But it's not always like that, right? Like, you have days where you can have thirty dollars fees, and um, you know, over time. Bitcoin on chain is going to become more expensive to accommodate for a security budget, and there's going to be a sustained fee market. Reasonably speaking, it's going to be a lot harder to send small amount of payments on the on the base chain. So, Lightning Network comes in as a scaling solution and a way to send money um, instantaneously for really cheap fees what I see people do is that people go and earn sats a lot of different ways through lightning network there's a lot of different services out there that let you you know accumulate sats either through you know gaming or purchases or you know the list goes on I I think in the past year there's been an explosion of like different products like uh you know spend spend your cash and earn sats back which is like pretty amazing and sometimes these values that the person has on the platform are really small right and if they were just limited to on-chain they they would be stuck right that value would be stuck it's like almost like like buying a starbucks gift card buying a single coffee and and having that 50 cents stuck there forever and and no way to like take that 50 cents out and all these little You know, chunks of change that different platforms have, and like Web 2.0 builds up. And um, there's really no way to uh, take that value out. With Lightning, it's different, right? Because if a platform supports Lightning, you're able to take your small chunks of change out and uh, accumulate it, move it over to a platform like River, and build up your balance that way. And over time, perhaps you can use, you know, the on chain layer and send a big UTXO out. But just the ability to just move small amounts of money is really empowering. And it gives you the Like option to exit at all times from these platforms. So, uh, you know, stackers that are earning Bitcoin everywhere, they always have uh, on these platforms on Lightning, they always have this ability to exit, which is really empowering.
0: Yeah. yeah, and, and look, I broadly, I'm with you there. But I think the one point I would challenge is just this idea that let's say you are an accumulator and you're not spending down. If you're trying to receive over the Lightning Network, then you might just run into problems of your channel resizing, right? So uh, you would then end up having to pay like a channel fee opens every time you're stacking, especially if you're talking about small amounts, if you're stacking, unless somebody has already opened a big channel to you. Uh, Because then you're kind of in that weird spot of, needing more inbound liquidity and maybe having to open another whole channel, right?
1: Yeah, this is, uh, this is a really interesting point, And I think this is where like dichotomy of like custodial lightning and non-custodial lightning comes in. I mean, we are in a privileged situation where we, we try to earn our clients' trust, having best-in-class security and making sure that we can operate custodial lightning. But in non-custodial lightning, and what I mean by that is people that are running their own nodes or have their own wallet on their phone, and they use maybe a proxy service in front of it. The situation is completely different, right? Because then you have to maybe worry about channel management, you have to worry about inbound liquidity, and it might not make economic sense to withdraw at all times, right? Back in 2019... Uh, I think the uh, non-custodial Lightning was falling behind. In some ways, it wasn't as easy. There was a lot of payment failures, and I think there was a lot of frustration around that. I think today it's a completely different story. Uh, You have a really, really good set of wallets out there that are non-custodial and allow you to receive lightning using like, you know, turbo channels on the fly channels, the ability to really receive lightning payments without really worrying about the on chain footprint, and just paying maybe perhaps a small fee in order to receive that payment and letting the, you know, proxy service handle the routing for you. So with that said, it really depends where your money is going. I, I think that because there is this opportunity to, you know, become your own essentially like payments hub. It's really empowering, right? So the user is able to do it if they want. Sometimes people will opt for the lazy way, and that's fine, and send money to custodial services. And I think that's you know that's completely fine. And likely, more than not, most Lightning Bitcoin will be in custodial services, just like we see most bi- uh, on-chain Bitcoin being in uh, custodial yeah. services. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin is uh, trending towards you know, centralization, it just means that over time, businesses have gotten better at earning people's trust, building better security practices. And at the end of the day, the clients can always withdraw. And now they have two options, they have Lightning and Bitcoin. So uh, I think we're getting into a better spot here.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think what I'm what i just referring to is more just like at in certain circumstances, maybe at like very small amounts, that customer might end up getting rinsed in terms of having to even as an example, if they were using Phoenix, and Phoenix automatically opens the channel, but every time if they're just stacking, they don't have any inbound capacity. So guess what, they're going to make a new channel, you're paying another on-chain fee. And so in that way, I guess uh, people who are trying to quote-unquote stack on Lightning might end up just paying a lot of on-chain fees if they're not clever about how they do it. Now, on the other hand, if you are lightning native and you earn lightning and you spend lightning, well, then it sort of balances out because then you would actually have inbound capacity and so on. So that's just an interesting example that I think is worth uh, thinking about and talking about. And I'm curious actually if that happens for you as an exchange because you might have a lot more people, let's say withdrawing lightning or depositing lightning and then does that cause issues for you on a in like a channel balancing side? Yeah.
1: And, and this goes back to a point of like the different types of like, Clients that are using Lightning, right? And there is going to be clients that only withdraw, right? And it's going to push liquidity the other direction. There's going to be people that you know, sort of uh, like traders, for example, will probably have more like a balanced liquidity use case where they're sending to an exchange, um, they're going to do a trade, they're going to settle, and they're going to bring that money back. And then there's hobbyists, and then uh, they—it's really a mixed bag. You don't really know the the thing for us that has helped us a lot is observability. So you know, just really monitoring our capacity with our peers, our failure rates, which direction is liquidity going. And it's never this constant thing where, okay, this peer has been the best for the past three months, it's always changing, right. And there are, you know, new exchanges or new platforms that pop up, and they become the more central routing node, and a lot of money is shifting in one direction. And it's something that we always have to like monitor and stay on top of. So for us, like observability has been like critical in really understanding the direction. Uh, that money is moving. So it it does happen that we'll have an imbalanced channel from time to time. Sometimes that's intentional, right? Because if we know that this peer is always going to be, you know, sending payments uh, to us, uh, sure, we want to like throw all our stats on their side. And um, in order to receive payments, sometimes we know that this peer uh, is going to be receiving money from us. So a lot of our inbound a lot of our capacity is outbound. And we use like, a lot of different variety of both like, open source and our internal tooling to rebalance channels on the fly in order, in order to like, uh, streamline the
0: experience for the end user. Awesome. And so on the topic of rebalancing, are you using like a circular rebalance or are you maybe also doing that approach I've heard where some people will actually differentially set fees on channels if they want to try to use that to entice someone to help rebalance the channel for them? Is that something you're looking at
1: yeah so um so on on both items, yes, and uh there's also you know swapping services that we use yep. so um I guess there are three different ways that we go about this is that um we leverage a lot on lightning lab's uh loop service and this allows you to you know sw- uh loop in loop out um uh and, and it, for, for the aim of changing the directional l- liquidity of channels. And this has been really, really useful for us, especially getting started. Well, actually, in fact, when, when we first getting when we were first getting started is really a situation of r- re- reaching out to different people and like asking for liquidity and returning you know a channel in response over signal and telegram. And, you know, it it is still like that today. And that's something that I think would be worth like talking about. But uh, we do use uh, Loop. uh, We use circular rebalancing. And whenever it makes sense fee-wise, sometimes swapping is kind of expensive. Sometimes circular rebalancing makes a lot of sense for us if we have the right channel set up for that. And we have started to experiment with using different fee rates for different channels in order to incentivize the you know, the routes that people build to use different routes. But it's sort of early for us to really do this. Um, I think this has been really successful for a lot of people. And it's something that we're definitely taking note of. And, you know, the these fees, you know, I hope one day that, you know, we could accumulate a lot of fees and give back to our clients in some way. But uh, yeah, I, I think this like fee rate approach is going to be really, really desirable, like mechanism for signaling liquidity
0: yeah that's really interesting to think about and just to see the way that it evolves over time and you mentioned earlier i mean there's a few ideas we can go into here one is this idea that uh river itself is being used as a swap service by some customers right they might send in as an example they might have earned some stats on lightning shot them over the Lightning network into their river custodial account and then withdrawn them out as maybe they need us dollars or maybe they need bitcoin on chain and that's that's one example uh, I guess of people who might use River as a swap swap service. Well, at the same time, you might yourself use swap services, right?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, we're using different swap services, and people are using us as a swap service. I guess it's pretty convenient for the clients to use us uh, for swapping. And I, I, you know, it's probably worth finding what that is uh, for people that don't know. But you know, if if you have Lightning Bitcoin, perhaps you want to get a UTXO, right? And so, what people will do is. They'll create invoices in our platform, send Lightning Bitcoin there. And, um, because we don't differentiate, they can withdraw an on-chain Bitcoin and vice versa, right? If you have a UTXO Bitcoin, you deposit to River and now you have Lightning and you can use Lightning, um, different ways, uh, there. People, uh, I guess of the hobbyist group, they're very inventive. There's a lot of people that also rebalance their own channels using us. So they'll create, you know, they'll try to nudge us to create a certain route in order to like rebalance a, a channel on their end. <sighs> <laughs> um, the, uh, it is, <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> um, they're pushing their fees onto you guys the, uh, though. <laughs> I think what may, <laughs> 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 well, they're, they're still paying the fee. Um, but so with regards to swapping, right? Like, uh, of course, um, us having a lot of small UTXOs is not desirable. Right. And so, uh, uh we take like act- an active UTXO management approach, um, all of our uh, all of our deposits go to this cold wallet, and we always consolidate at low uh, fee periods. And we use batching. Um, we use native SegWit, and uh, so I, you know, uh, we we create an approach where you know we're offering the service to people that you know use River the certain way. But uh, I don't think we're getting hurt in any way by by doing this.
0: Back to the show in a moment. After a word for the sponsors, have you backed up your Bitcoin? Get the cypher grid this is a new product coming out from CipherSafe.io. this is the best value metal seed backup product in the industry you get everything you need for 59 dollars it has two plates for all 24 seed words those two plates are facing each other to hide your seed words you can lock it with a padlock you get a tamper evidence seal provided and an automatic center punch provided so you can stamp in those letters of your seed words have you thought about what would happen if your place went up on fire or if there were to be some natural disaster? Make sure you can recover your coins. Go to CipherSafe.io and use the code lavera for a discount. So as Bitcoin number goes up, it is important to think about your Bitcoin security and Unchained Capital are helping you set up multi-signature vaults. So you can hold two keys and they will hold one. And they make this process easy for you. You can go and sign up on their website at unchained.com and they've also got a concierge onboarding program which is becoming quite popular so you can essentially pay for that program they will ship you to hardware wallets and do video call with you to teach you how to do this even if you've never held your own bitcoin private keys before remember you don't want to trust custodians and even single signature hardware wallets can fail so it's worthwhile considering these kinds of options like using multi-signature with Unchained. So if you're interested, go to unchained.com, select the concierge onboarding package and use the code Levera for a discount. My favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet is the cold card. You can get it at coinkite.com and it has all sorts of features like the ability to be used completely air-gapped. You can get a micro SD card and ferry that information back and forth between your computer using wallets like Sparrow or Spectre or Electrum. And in doing so, never actually touch your hardware wallet with your computer, which is a great step in the direction of improving your security. There's also sorts of other features available, such as Seed XOR, a plausibly deniable means of storing secrets in two or more parts that look and behave just like the original secret. The cold card is a very versatile device. You can use it as part of a single signature setup or even as part of a multi-signature setup, even with some of the providers like Unchained as an example. So go to coincard.com and use the code Levera to get a discount on your cold card. Back to the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's cool in that way. And you mentioned the uh, the pleb routing node operators. There's a bunch of pleb communities. I think probably the largest and well-known one is plebnet. And then there's a few others out there or well, many others out there. So that's interesting. And uh, what can you tell us a little bit, of, obviously without doxing, but can you tell us a little bit about this user profile? I think that might be interesting for listeners to hear about.
1: Yeah, uh, they're really awesome. <laughs> uh, had a chance to meet a few of the plebs. They're great. I mean, they, they kind of fit in, into this like uh, hobbyist customer profile, right, where they're taking charge. Uh, they understand what Bitcoin is, and they want to participate in the Lightning Network on their own terms. And they've become a pretty central force in the public graph on, on, on routing through, you know, this kind of self-organized community. You know, there there's not much to say other than that. Um, it's yeah. really, really nice. That it's it's not just exchanges that are in the lightning network. It's it's just like, you know, it's just everyone. Right. Like it's anyone that, you know, can run from a Raspberry Pi. to like, you know, a gaming computer or server. Right. Yeah. So it's like everyone's participating in this. Everyone is like helping route. Um, Everyone's earning some sort of yield on it by, you know, providing this public good. And so it's it's just, like, amazing testament to, like, what Lightning Network is. And, you know, like, to sum it up, it really is this, like, politically neutral payments network that anyone can participate in. It, in. And it's very different from, uh, you know, other L2s or other L1s that really don't have this, like, property of free entry and free exit.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, a lot of those groups have telegram chat groups, and they're all sharing tips and tricks. And they might do things. I've seen other concepts like this idea of having ring of fire and different ideas that that are in play there to try to have a node that actually gets some routing because people want to uh, addicted to this idea of, oh, I'm going to make money on the lightning network, even if maybe not everyone is like actually profitable, but it's, it's kind of like a hobby for many people. Um, and the other big profile you mentioned is traders. So I am curious as well to hear a little bit about this. And maybe if you could give us your thoughts on this whole idea of Lightning versus Liquid for inter-exchange transfers, or is it Lightning and Liquid? How, how are you uh, thinking about that? Yeah,
1: so um, the traders, uh, you know, they use different exchanges. In the past year, we've seen a lot of exchanges uh, become onboarded with Lightning. You know, Bitfinex really stands out as... Um, have done has done a like a really excellent job at this there are new like upstarts like LN markets and collider that are really using the lightning network in novel ways in order to um create a you know uh, a trading experience that people want and um i guess in the beginning of lightning uh it was it was doubtful on the ability to trade with large amounts if you're a trader you, you know you're moving size and uh you know, you can't be sending <laughs> 10 sats and, and going uh 100x on an exchange and, you know, praying to God that you make money. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's changed a lot today. You know, like peop- there are legitimate people and traders using Lightning Network as a settlement layer uh, in order to move money around. It's really desirable. It's fast. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's cheap. And it's really easy to enter and exit very quickly. And so we've seen, like, a lot of people using Lightning Network that way, you know, and again, that forces us to kind of understand this user profile and balance our channels a certain way in order to accommodate for this user experience. Liquid stands out as another really excellent uh, L2 sidechain that lets people trade between exchanges with large sizes. I think what stands out is their technology is really interesting, Um, you know, having uh, a more more of an interesting, like... um, privacy technology that is really useful for traders but i for, for 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 us personally lightning network has been this like politically neutral platform that i think is really different from uh, a federated multisig. Uh, multi-sig so you know we're still thinking about how we fit in with liquid but we've seen a lot of demand more so on lightning because of its emergence emergent properties and its political neutral stance so you know this may change but i think there's a huge driving force behind lightning than there is on liquid but it's really interesting to see like the different use cases i i I think, in some ways liquid is really great if you're a trader and might be continue to be like the premier place in order to settle between exchanges, but it really is a matter of
0: adoption and liquidity and seeing how um how things develop there yeah, and I mean, the way I'm thinking about it, it's like obviously lightning is faster, uh, but liquid doesn't have that aspect of needing the channels to be in the right configuration and in the case of lightning for the traders who are lo- moving large amounts. They basically would need private channels between big exchanges essentially to facilitate what they're doing and i wonder then if it's like if it's like precisely at the moment that they need to be able to move their lightning funds over that channel would get exhausted because everyone's trying to go the same way so i've always wondered about that and i'm curious whether that almost cuts against the case uh in some small way although maybe it still makes sense overall to have it and to do it but is that is that something you would see or you don't see that really as a, as a concern or as like a, a common um, sticking point for this idea of lightning inter-exchange?
1: Yeah, I think there are two points there that are worth discussing. So uh, there's like the privacy angle and then there's a like capital efficiency. So, you know, private channels are not actually private. Uh, they're just not gossip. You know, if, if you're in, intelligent enough to monitor the network, you can kind of see when lightning when private channels are created, and when they're uh, closed. So all that means is that they're not gossiped. But the privacy uh, context of Lightning Network is really attractive, where messages are wrapped in onions, like Tor. And when you pass along this message, the person that receives the message has no idea what's inside. They just know that I got this from one party, and I'm supposed to pass it to another. So there's a really nice privacy benefit there. Liquid has a different privacy context where you know using confidential transactions is really attractive and you're able to look at a transaction on chain but not really see the uh, the amounts there. So that that's a nice feature. I think in some ways it's really similar. I don't think your privacy is diminished using one or the other. But with Lightning uh, you're right. It's very capitally intensive, right? So you need to commit a certain amount of capital for a lightning channel, and um, in order to send and receive, you need to like be worried about you know the directional liquidity of your channel. It's a lot easier to get bootstrapped if you're using a custodial service, of course. Yeah, and if you're a non-custodial trader. You have a whole set of challenges and problems. I think there are a lot of easier tools nowadays to make this easier. So, um, lightning labs has this uh, pool service that lets you rent a lightning channel essentially. So you can rent like a rather large lightning channel for some sort of interest rate and you're able to use it, uh, use a lightning channel, uh, for your trades. And, you know, if you're a savvy trader, you could figure out, you know, is this interest rate make sense and you know, is the gains I'm about to make on this hundred X leverage worth it? And I think there's a lot of novel ways that traders could use Lightning Network in a non-custodial way today that didn't exist a couple of years ago. Generally speaking, I you know, I I think with Lightning, one of the more existential questions that is worth asking is the capital efficiency that different routing nodes uh deploys in a network, right? Why is, you know, is the Bitcoin here on this that I've locked into this channel at risk, mind you, because, you know, there's there's a security context, it's a hot wallet. Is it worth that routing fee versus, you know, lending it out or using a you know, whole slew of different services? So I think that's going to be a very interesting question that we're going to see over time. And I think this question is going to develop into a more mature fee market on the Lightning Network, both for, you know, routing and also just for the maintenance of channels I think a lot of people right now are using Lightning Network as a public good. Uh, there are a lot of hobbyists, and they want the network to succeed. But fundamentally, of course, um, it can only succeed if the financial incentives are there. So there's there's almost definitely going to be some sort of push in order to create um, the right
0: financial incentives in order to route. Yeah, very interesting considerations. And I mean, you're right. I think the, the capital aspect, and you're you're you know you're pushing you're you're tying up capital in a specific direction. Uh, in the private channels network, if you will, or unannounced channels, let's call it as uh, <laughs> maybe another way to put it. And so, yeah, I guess that's that's the concern that maybe people might have. But hey, we'll see what happens, right? Obviously, it's a market and people are going to try things and see what kind of experience they can give for the customers or for the traders and see see what wins. So, I'm, I'm excited to see kind of how that uh, plays out as well. Um, I'm curious as well, in terms of offering a Lightning wallet, has there been any mentioned from say regulators about like oh are you paying i mean it's not like there's dark net markets who are operating on the lightning network at least as th- that i know of today but um has that been a question asked or is that something like or is that like a pu- future potential aspect because i mean as you mentioned earlier it's it's meant to be politically neutral but i wonder in the future could that change if regulators or the government or legislators even maybe that's an angle there
1: yeah, I mean, I'll preface that I'm not a legal scholar or yeah. uh, I don't talk too much to regulators. But I guess what, you know, what, what I could share is that what we're seeing now is a lot of larger players in the ecosystem want to adopt Lightning Network. Yeah. But they need to have a way to get the check boxes filled out by compliance departments mm-hmm. in there um businesses and i don't think lightning network is something radically different from like essentially like it it i think it neatly fits into like existing regulations most likely
0: yeah um
1: it's just a matter of figuring out the risk profile with how you send money and receive money just like anything else
0: right and so
1: um i think what you know what what's likely to happen is this better tooling with regards to developing risk profiles and how you send and receive money. Um, but you know, this is kind of like a big, uh, uh, a big question that a lot of people have to like answer, and um especially at these larger institutions as they develop it you know th- i i a lot of the same laws that apply to knowing your customer will apply to lightning Network most likely, but that doesn't diminish lightning network's ability to operate. it is more inflicted upon businesses in order to comply with reasonable regulations, but people could always use
0: Lightning Network however they see fit because it is a technology, yeah of course. Yeah. And uh also wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, the IT technical aspects of it as well, obviously, as you're obviously very familiar with. What is it like running larger Lightning nodes and infrastructure? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the focus of running on-premise hardware as opposed to the hosted node approach.
1: Yeah. So we take pride in not using the cloud. <laughs> so uh, most other people... uh You know, when they're setting up their uh, business, they will, you know, subscribe to G cloud AWS, we took a different approach, we went to the data center, got hardware, and uh, run all of our critical services on this hardware. Why do we do that? Uh, Because we know exactly how many people have access to this hardware. And if you were to ask Google or Amazon, how many people have access to my G Cloud account Uh, like uh it'd be scary (laughs) (laughs)
0: because there might be like third party third party third party all these contractors and they wouldn't be able to figure it out
1: yeah it's it's a mess and you know we've seen recent recently like there was this capital one issue with aws instances being you know pwned by an insider so it's 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 really scary so uh i think our decision to self-host has been really useful um it, it creates a lot of peace in mind for both us and our clients but it's it there's still like a bunch of challenges right because um unlike a cold wallet where the keys are never in a server lightning keys are generally hot and you know there are the the lightning state machine is very complex there's a bunch of different keys that are involved in both creating a channel updating a channel the revocation key so um, there's a lot of moving parts there i think if anyone's listening the Bits blog post on the like, lightning network for exchanges is like an excellent starting point to understand the different like security awareness around the different keys and there's all these different projects, like by uh, Devrandom. Um, I think the Lightning Center project. There is, you know, initiatives by both LND and Seed Lightning on like how to really secure this key and you know the the different keys. And you know, when it, when I speak with different exchanges, uh, it's always top of mind where the both the security and operational security of lightning of running a lightning node is pretty intense. It's not like anything else in 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 crypto. I think we, so far, we've taken a really good conservative approach to um, securing funds. We, you know, just like top of mind, we have a limit on how much money we are willing to put into this essentially hot wallet, right? And uh, we abide by that limit. And we have taken a lot of steps in mitigating the... Uh, like the level of hotness it is. So, uh, you know, a cold wallet is, you know, an air-gapped, you know, machine that uh, contains keys and is able to sign. Some of the keys in a Lightning Network State machine can be cold, and um, we've leveraged HSMs in order to keep those keys cold and still have reasonable high availability in order to sign. There are still some other keys that are still uh, in the node that we've slowly been trying to rip out. And I think... uh, at least for us, a lot of it is also driven by community efforts. There is you know, amazing work being done by l especially. We we run a lot of l nodes um, because of our code base being written in Go, our relationship with Lightning Labs. And um, they've taken a really good uh, ar- architectural decision about making sure that you're able to do some remote signing. So uh, the Lightning node could run as it is, but it could be a watch-only node. And you can have the signing being done in your own, you know, uh, custody setup. So essentially, you can have these HSMs be completely cold or warm, depending on the high uh, high availability nature of these signers, and allow different requests between the Lightning Node and the HSMs to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, Today, it's a little bit different. You know, that's the ideal state. Today, we rely on HSMs for some of the keys, but there's still a lot of ways to go. There's a lot of networking things we've done to make sure that our networking is locked down. There is, you know, container security. There's hardware security. It it really is like a, a rabbit hole with regards to securing Lightning nodes.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Hey, And uh, your blog post also mentions this idea of exposing only one node out to the network and having some in the background. Could you explain a little bit about that idea? Yeah.
1: So at a high level, our architecture design is that we have a routing node. And this is a publicly available routing node. And we have several end nodes. And these end nodes can be spun up and destroyed at will. And what connects these end nodes with the routing node are these unannounced channels, pr- private channels, and we only expose one routing node uh, to the network, just for the ability of having a really central routing node um, limit the capital, uh, ex- you know, um, like the amount of overused, capital locked yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, you know, so far the architecture has made a lot of sense. Um, I've I've noticed a lot of exchanges spinning up multiple routing nodes. Uh, for varying levels of reason uh, for, for for different reasons, I think for us, um, what's going to happen is that uh, because we have these limits on our routing nodes and the amount of money we're willing to be comfortable putting into this system, it's likely we might have multiple routing nodes. But um, it doesn't mean that there is you know segregated security or extra security if you have like another routing node, uh, especially if they're running on the same host machine or, you know, the same hardware. Um, uh, I, I I think, in, you know, there, there's still like a lot of tooling with regards to building like a really good routing node and architecture there. Um, routing node, I guess, to explain to people that are unfamiliar, uh, this node just essentially uh, handles the relationships to different peers and ma- manages the liquidity between different nodes. The end nodes are just, creating invoices and building the routes. So they're pretty dumb in that regard. Um, they have, you know, it's capital locked in with the routing node, but, you know, we're, we're able to spin them up and tear them out, tear them down, have different destination pub keys and such. Um, and it, the real reason is this, it gives us more high, high availability around
0: that, that layer. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And, uh You mentioned also this channel acceptor policy, and I'm curious if you could uh, spell out a little bit there around. uh, I I, I presume some of this would be public and some is private. So obviously, whatever you can say, um, what's the like the policy there if someone wants to open channels with you guys?
1: Yeah, so um, I wish we can connect with everyone (laughs) that uh, (laughs) wants to connect with us, but at the end of the day, because our routing node has a function to route, we have to make sure that we have the best peers. And um, uh, we only want to be connected with peers that have high uptime, um, have really good uh, visibility on, on the public graph, or are, are able to route, um, have very low payment failures, and are able to create channels that are uh, very sizable. And uh, if we were to accept everyone's you know, channel uh, open requests, uh, it would probably diminish our ability to route successfully to people. So what we do is we have an allow list of public keys, uh, identities of different uh, nodes in the network that we deem as like really great routers. Uh, We occasionally add to this list whenever we have uh, requests. Um, You know, a client that wants to connect with us will be added to this list, right? Uh, But uh, yeah, it it just allows us to route better, but it also just um, prevents us from having zombie channels these are channels that somebody made one day thought they were going to use the lightning network and then their power cords, got, the sailed, Raspberry yeah. Pi got disconnected. So they're offline. And so like, uh, we don't want those because that diminishes our abilities route. Um, and, uh, it also, you know, uh, if, if, if we have trusted peers, other peers that are, you know, either clients or exchanges, um, Uh, It helps us in our backup ability. So using the data loss um, prevention protocol, I think is what it's called, the static channel backups. Um, The ability to, um, you know, if we go offline, we're able to come back online and ask, you know, our very trusted peers on the last commitment state. This probably isn't possible if it's just randos on the internet. Um, The other thing is... um, there are definitely unknown attack vectors that we might not know about. um, And, you know, just keeping a more closed system um, creates a lot of peace of mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think those are totally fair considerations. Uh, And I also wanted to bring up the point around comms channels with lightning peers, right? And so, Obviously the lightning network itself can be used for messaging but I guess the problem in some cases might be that peer's gone offline as an example um and maybe in the future there'll be more that evolves out here as an example they might be saying oh hey we've got a you know a one bitcoin channel but I'd like to up it to two are you cool with that and things like that so where do you see the future of communications between lightning peers going
1: yeah um always to whatever is easier uh so it's it has been signal and it has been telegram has been twitter uh it, it's, <laughs> it's really um it's it's really informal uh and that's what's kind of cool right like you have organizations like plebnet right like where uh uh it's just people chatting and opening channels with one another i you know, today it's pretty informal uh i hope it stays that way um but you know as as institutions enter the Lightning network space and as businesses adopt it there's going to have to be some sort of SLA, right. Between like different, um, exchanges and, uh, you know, it's likely there's going to be some sort of like formal communication, communication structure between different parties. That's what I, where I think it's going. But, uh, you know, as of today, you know, if you're just getting started with lightning network, I think, you know, it's, it's really reasonable just to message people. If you have their telegram or signal and, um, talk to them and, uh, ask them for some inbound and you'll return it, you know, some, some channel and then you'll, you know, return with a new channel. And um, this kind of like com- camaraderie works really well. You know, when I, you know, at least from my experience, you know, I noticed that somebody goes down, I'll just send them a message on signal. Hey, uh, is there, is everything okay? And, you know, that's happened to us too where, you know, people message us to make sure that we're okay. So um I think that that that's like the type of informal communication structure and it'll it'll probably last for quite a while it's fun.
0: Yeah, I see. And I guess a lot of this is just because lightning is so young, right? It's as we look at it today it's maybe just under 16,000 lightning nodes out there and around 73,000 channels, but let's say we get <laughs> that number goes 10x, well then maybe it might be harder at that point. So Yeah, it's certainly interesting to see where that goes. And also that idea around SLAs is definitely an interesting one because I can imagine, so for listeners who aren't aren't familiar, SLA is like service level agreement and basically an IT company might agree, okay, we'll provide X amount of uptime, you know, 99.999% uptime as an example. And so I wonder what would a lightning SLA look like? Okay, this number of payments... Uh, no pay, this level of no payment failures or what percentage and this amount of liquidity and this amount of uptime i guess that's that's what it might look like as as the industry professionalizes
1: yeah i think so too i think there's going to be a level of maturity um and it's kind of warranted with the level of money entering the system it, it it'll be very curious to see what it looks like yeah it, it I'm, you know, the community is still like super vibrant and, you know, the suits haven't entered yet. Yeah, for <laughs> but, now. Uh,
0: <laughs> One can dream. Um,
1: so, Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, there's, uh, I, I think there's always going to be, you know, o- over time some level of maturity around certain things. And that's good because at the end of the day, people are going to get better reliability and routing out of it.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's just about all the time we've got for today. today. But uh, Philip, if you've got any closing thoughts for listeners, uh, and of course, tell people where they can find you online. Yeah,
1: super fun chatting with you. Been uh, listening to the podcast for quite a while. So. a awesome. Long time listener, first time caller. Uh, you can find me on Twitter by my name. I'd recommend people to uh, check out the River blog. If you're first getting started with Lightning, um, there's so many resources. So uh, lightning labs has a builder's doc. There's a ton of different GitHubs of like, you know, like awesome lightning links and. Just like delving into it is really, really fun. I think with any like new technology, like it, it's one thing to talk about it and then it's another to like actually use it and try it. So like really, you know, hopefully I was convincing enough to use the Lightning Network. Just go ahead and <laughs> download a non-custodial wallet and try sending money around. Then go ahead and build, you know, your Lightning Node and, you know, connect with peers. And, you know, it, it's, it's really an awesome opportunity in human history to like have this ability to freely exchange value. So um,
0: take advantage of it. Fantastic. Well, Philip, I've enjoyed chatting with you as well. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm in Miami for the next few days for the HRF Bitcoin Academy as part of Oslo Freedom Forum. So if any of you are around, it would be great to see you. Otherwise, find the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 308 and I'll see you in the Citadels.